and I'll tell you something you're also not into. Um, my opinion that 15-year-olds should be geotagged when they go to parties. Yeah, I'm going to come um, and rescue little Wallace Jr. when he's 10. Uh, it's <laughs> almost 99.5% um, disagreement. How disrespectful. It is untrusting, and frankly, it's morally wrong, and they'll find it. <laughs> Gee, it's strange to find yourself um, on the wrong side of public opinion uh, uh, again, Wallace. Um, no tag for the 15-year-old. You will not sleep because you'll be checking tag location all the time. Um, hey, Wallace, how would you feel if your wife secretly tagged you? Okay. How boring would that be? <laughs> oh, today he went to work and then he came home and then he went there'd to be, work. There'd be nothing to see. Um, Belinda says, if you tag your 15-year-old Wallace, you will destroy any relationship you may have with them. Sleepless nights with teenagers are expected. I don't know. That's a bit full on, quite frankly. But anyway, thank you for um, your response to that. I want to talk about this, though. National, they proposed a national infrastructure agency. Chris Luxon said they'll work with partners to develop the right sort of financing. And that includes taking money from other countries for roads, including China. The issue was raised yesterday, why we take so long to plan and build major projects, whereas overseas, such as the new light rail in Perth, Fast-tracked. A couple of weeks back, we had Dr. Eric Crampton from the New Zealand Initiative on, and he said, look, PPPs and toll, route, toll roads, they were the way forward, as was more overseas financing. Some, le- some said, however, let's bring back the Ministry of Works model. Many recall that. Ministry of Works was an infrastructure titan. They built railways, motorways, even dams, privatised under David Longy. Well, Max Rashbrook was a former infrastructure reporter in London. He's a senior research fellow in the School of Government at Victoria University. Max, kia ora. Kia ora, ora. Now, I know we have discussed this, but it's very interesting, and uh, what a timely uh, time to raise this issue again. A national infrastructure agency. I mean, it seems a roundabout way of saying we do need some sort of mega agency again, Max. Yes, I, I think so. I think... Are you there? We'll get him back. What do you think, Alexia? So we need China to come in like the backwards and broke Pacific Island that we are to finance our infrastructure. Does nobody find that a little bit scary? Or... How so? Why would that be? <laughs> because, you know, you don't get nothing, something, nothing. If you go and look at Fiji... Some of those roads the Chinese have built are fantastic. Yeah, and the Fijians aren't too happy about the the level of influence that the Chinese are now exerting there. So there's, uh, you know, we okay. have, you have to be pretty careful. All right, Max, back to that point. Yes, look, I, I think it's a great question, Wallace, and I think New Zealand infrastructure has suffered for a long time from a lack of planning, um, a lack of coordination. Um, I do think we need some central body there driving it, you know, sort of determining at least what the needs are, um, planning for the future, but also thinking about things like what's the pipeline of the workers who are available to work on it, because we have chronic skill shortages. And I also think we need people right in the heart of government who know how to drive a decent bargain. I mean, I think one of the problems government faces is public servants go to negotiate these contracts with hugely experienced 
contractors, you know, they get the raw end of the deal and we get these infrastructure contracts which cost huge amounts. So I think we need some really tough-minded super procurers right at the heart of government. And do you think that, um, because that's the issue, isn't it? The procurement issue, the budget, it always overruns. In fact, I think we overrun more than any other in the OECD. Do you think that a, a infrastructure titan, uh, a government-backed MOW, will help address that? Yeah, I do, because I think a lot of it is about capability. You know, you need people within government who've done lots of these deals, who understand infrastructure and construction really well, who can say to the private sector, OK, we want you to do these things, but we want you to deliver it 10% cheaper than the last time because you need to have learned all the lessons from it. You know, you need to retain that knowledge and expertise within government. I mean, what we've done with you know, privatising a lot of things in recent decades is all the knowledge stays with the contractors. If they learn something, they just take it off to the next deal. It doesn't stay with government. Government isn't able to learn those lessons and drive the prices down harder next time. Are you convinced, Phil, or otherwise? Yeah, I, I'm not quite sure. What, if, you, if you're saying let's build a Ministry of Works where we're hiring 20,000 people to, to lean on shovels, uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure about that. I, I, I do... I get the idea about the the government having the the expertise and the capability to assess and uh, and help with the planning of um, uh, projects. But what I see as the most pressing issue is the boom bust kind of infrastructure model that we've got. And no sooner do we build up a whole lot of people with expertise and everything else, then the pipeline stops, and and they will have to end up going overseas to get a job. And that's something I think we've got to we've got to get some long term planning and and, and cross party support for infrastructure building. Max, I, I, can I just bring up um, a couple of texts have actually raised the issue of uh, uh, the memories of men resting on shovels on long, long lunch breaks. Well, look, I mean, we have, you know, privatised construction now and I still see a lot of people resting on shovels, so I'm not sure that that's solved the problems. Look, I, I think Bill's hit on the, there's the tension. There's people like me who want a Ministry of Works that is about you know being much better procurers and having that knowledge at the heart of government. There's also the argument that we should employ the workforce, the actual the construction workers and the tippies and the subbies and everything else. That to me is still more of an open question. Um, that might not be inefficient. And I think he's right. We do need long-term certainty to iron out those boom and bust cycles. So that's about long-term planning. It's about, you know, carrying through with projects once they're started. It's also about the two main political parties, you know, agreeing on some kind of infrastructure pipeline that neither of them will sabotage when the government changes. Yeah, Max, I was going to ask you, didn't we, didn't Labour announce a few years back that there was going to be such a body, an infrastructure body, that who's, when the decision would made, that would transcend politics, like they would make sure that that project got carried out? What's happened to that? Um, look, there's been tentative steps taken in that direction. Um, there is, sort of, you know, there is an infrastructure commission um, within government, but it's not quite bulked up, probably the way it it needs to. Um, we've also got the repurposing of Otakaro as a potential sort of government super procure. Procure. So there's little things happening, but just not probably at the scale we need yet. In terms of, can I just address the issue? Oh, someone says here, uh, Sue says, my dad worked for Ministry of Works. No potholes in those days. Well, 
I don't know about that, but I, what I do know, Max, is that there's been a real issue around t- time frame. Uh, several people did um, make mention of the Perth rail link um, uh, done in just a few years, and yet here we have the likes of a quarter century for Waikato Expressway. Yeah, but I, I mean, I think there's, there's all sorts of questions there, and but a lot of it, again, I think comes back to the expertise. I mean, you know, you look at some of the problems this government has had, light rail in Auckland, you know, all these ideas, all these plans, no real progress, something gets proposed, something gets shot down. You know, you need to have a clear, you need to have that clear pipeline and that clear idea of what you actually want to do, and then you can get things rolling. All right, very good, Max. Kia ora. Thank you for that. That's Max Rashbrook there, uh, Research Fellow at the School of Government. And people are reminding uh, me here um, uh, just some of these big projects, Alexia. Uh, the Benmore Dam, Mangaweka Deviation. I mean, just titans, aren't they, uh, of their yeah, day? Absolutely. Uh, but, you know, what Max was talking about, one of the things that I just wanted to pick up on is the information that's lost through contracting. Now, I did a podcast a while back with a guy from this company called Reveal, which which was, they do, they use sort of really modern right. equipment to work out what's underground, all the cables and all the, oh, you yeah. know. So every time someone digs up, you know, to, to do a project needs to dig up, you can bring this company, bring them in to find out without digging what is actually under there. But of course that information stays with the organisation that paid for it. Now if a Ministry of Works could map the whole country and Wellington right. Council is doing this actually, they are mapping their whole underground so that when people contract for a job, the council can say and here here is the map of what's under there so work your pricing around that instead of having unpleasant surprises and contingencies okay. in terms of when you dig your hole. You know, a Ministry of Works could do that, and it would save billions. Very good. Uh, Alexia Russell, Phil Taylor with me this afternoon on the panel. Thanks for your feedback, particularly around um, whether or not you would um, put an air tag in your 15-year-old's bag or clothes before they went to a party. Thanks. We'll have more about that uh, in the week. But to this, flat roofs, internal gutters, no eaves. We're seeing quite a bit of that, aren't we, in our architecture? These are the architectural statements of many new homes today. But after the costly leaky building disaster in the 90s, are we less willing to try new design features? And can they handle our climate with us? Stephen McNeil, senior building physicist in the Brands Building Performance Research team. Stephen, welcome. Thanks, Wallace. It's a really, it's a great topic, this one, because I can, I'm just trying to compare to your classic villa or homes with eaves. When I see eaves, I think, ah, yes, water not getting onto the sides. Really? Uh, no eaves? Aotearoa? You're kidding me, Stephen. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a, it's a decision for, uh, I guess, the, the homeowner and what they're trying to achieve. Um, I mean, definitely our recommendation would be to, to keep eaves. Um, and to avoid things like internal gutters, and that's purely, um, well, not not purely. It's it's from from two main aspects. Um, one is affordability, and the other one is durability. Yeah. Um, so while while you can do it, um, our recommendation would be to keep things simple. It keeps costs down, and it means uh, your building is a a little bit more resilient. And it, um, and it looks and it, it looks nice and sharp. Eh? Those really clean lines. We don't have those ease. But what about the internal gutters? What what what's a potential problem with the internal gutter? Ah, oh, so if you look um, at, at the way an internal gutter functions, effectively you're you're collecting water directly over your living space, um, if, if that's where the gutter is, is sitting. 
Um, so when they fail, they will tend to um, bring water directly inside the building. Mm. So when I say fail, it might be blocked. Um, there might be have been a workmanship issue or, or something like that. Whereas uh, traditional external gutters, they do have that capability to still flow back into the building if you don't maintain them, but they are much, much easier to maintain um, and they're not as uh, sensitive to uh, design you know, to, to the way you've designed your building. So yeah. um, if, you, if, you th- if you think about um, an internal gutter where you've got a large roof area discharging onto it, you have to be quite diligent about your, your flow rate calculations to make sure that that's going to have enough capacity, um, especially when you're considering things like uh, climate change. With, oh, my gosh. You know, high rainfalls and all those kind of things. Uh, Phil Taylor, I'm actually getting the chills just thinking about cleaning that internal guttering, making sure it's scrupulously well. clean. Funny, funny you say that. I, I've lived in some dodgy places in my time, but the most searing memory I have is sitting in a living room during the pouring rain, and the internal walls were like a waterfall. You're kidding? When it, it turned, it turned out that our internal gutter was blocked. We ended up getting the fire brigade in. They they cleared it out by shoving the fire hose in the in the gutter and blowing it out that way. Oh my so, gosh! Yeah, you've li- you've it, lived this. It's, it was, I've lived this. Oh, yeah. no, please, I'm have expensive. your internal gutters because as the owner of a plastering firm, <laughs> I am all in favour of this. <laughs> More work. Morally wrong. Okay. You see, morally yeah, wrong. Yeah, right, that's morally dodgy. <laughs> yeah. What question do you have, Alexia, on this? Uh, I mean, I this, this know, it's architecture, isn't it? Yeah, well, yeah. okay, I want to know with flat roofs. What is the consideration of having rooftop gardens and, you know, rain-catching gardens? But, it's got to be easier on a flat roof, right? Um, yeah, it is, um, but they're never really truly flat. That's the other thing to remember. Um, I think I think the acceptable solution upgraded from one degree to two degree if, uh, in response to some of the weather tightness concerns. That's why they've done it in a grid around. pattern, eh? Well, they, yeah, so that, yeah. That, that's to um, the, the the reason the slope was increased was to allow for some some deflection um, in the in the structure over time. And you right. have to think we're in a in a place where there's a lot of earthquakes. Um, and any small settling can can turn, you know, one or two degrees to flat. So mm. it's it's you have to be wary of those kind of things. Um, yeah, I mean, architecture you do see more and more of these these features in sort of the the upper end. And I think the important thing to to recognise is that typically people are going to be very well healed who are trying to include these kind of features. Mm. Um, so they're, they're they're assembling a good team behind them. Um, but for the for the mass market, I mean, and and. In order to, to mitigate any potential risks, um, I, I think we would definitely advocate for keeping things as simple as possible, decent slopes to shed as much water as possible, yeah. Um, and yeah, and clean your gutters. Clean your gutters. And clean your gutters. Yes, um, and even with normal gutters, mm. clean them um, because they can backflow into eaves. Something as simple as that. A building. Well, yeah, every time Gosh. every time we get heavy rain and strong wind at the same time, we get phone calls. Yeah. yeah. Very good, Stephen. Kia ora. appreciate your time on, on that. Uh, in fact, I'd like to talk about that more, but we don't have time. That's Stephen McNeil, Senior Building Physicist um, for the Building Performance Research Team. It's nine away from five. Quite excited about talking about this. We've had such a response. What is it like to make a mid-career job change? Well, all, we're all afraid of change. What change did you do? Insurance to dog walkies. A lawyer to life coach, a glassblower to hedge fund analyst. Well, an article recently delved into this, but with us now is Stephen from Wellington, who started um, from being a professional surfer uh, to a hairdresser. Kia ora, Steve. Kia ora, Wallace. In fact, you've had quite the journey. It didn't stop there. 
Oh, well, I tell you what, like, I think professional servant is probably a little bit of an overstatement. I was sponsored by the government and lived on Makarori Beach in, in Gisborne in the 1980s. But after that, I travelled back to Wellington, where I'm from, and did a hairdressing apprenticeship. And from hairdressing, where did you go? So I moved to Australia on the Gold Coast to, to chase after the waves, of course, um, in, the, in the late 80s. But and I was hairdressing over there, but then I decided to go to university. So I went to Griffith University, courtesy of the Australian taxpayer, thank you very much, um, and did a degree in information technology very early, actually, in the, in the early 1990s. So I kind of just caught that wave of the IT industry taking off in the early 90s, and, was, and, and it was just serendipity in many ways. And now, Alexia, um, Steve's travelling the world speaking at conferences on the ethics of IT. So catching well, waves quite... is actually your specialty. <laughs> it's your special skill. I, well, I guess what happened was I was, I, when I moved back to New Zealand in the 90s, I was, I, I was, going to university got me interested in philosophy. So I came back to Wellington and went to Victoria University and studied philosophy there and did a master's degree and then kind of ended up doing a PhD and found myself um, uh, teaching. In fact, I, I think we, um, Welltech and Fitirea um, in Wellington uh, were the first to introduce a compulsory digital ethics course in our IT degree in New Zealand, Gosh. I think. So are you a restless soul, Steve? Oh, well, it's, just, it's like lifelong learning, you know, as they say. I've just chased, I guess I'm novelty-driven to an extent, mm. you know. Isn't this great, Phil? Phil Taylor, it almost comes back to that notion uh, that you heard earlier or you spoke of about resilience, that, you know, we can change. And if you aren't happy, say, being a hairdresser or IT, you can do something else. Yeah, I've been trying to get out of being a lawyer for forever, uh, Wallace, and I'm actually um, uh, trying out for a radio announcer role uh, just at the moment. Okay, Uh, all right. Auditioning. Well, okay. Well, as we um, speak. Well, well, my boss is listening right now, so I'm sure at any moment I'll get a text whether that's a yes or a no. Um, but Steve, hey, kia ora, I appreciate your time, and that's quite a story. So thank you. Thank you so much. And from just outside of Whangarei, we have Paul Kelly. Welcome, Paul. Ah, hello. Afternoon, Wallace. Uh, great to uh, be with you. It's great to have you on, Paul. So you gave up a career in what? Uh, I was uh, an engineer and then uh, using that was in uh, commercial training and I was uh, in, uh, international training manager for a company and uh, that was good. I really enjoyed it. Um, but by the end of my 30s, terribly burnt out. So uh, decided to uh, do something different. Didn't know what. And uh, as I worked up from the factory floor at apprenticeship, I uh, decided to uh, go to university, get a degree and work out what to do. And that led to um, teaching, which I've been um, doing for coming up for 20 years. You and, became a uh, teacher. You went into teaching from engineering management. Yeah, much against uh, a lot of family opposition. <laughs> You're crazy. <laughs> There's, you know, how are you going to live? There's no money. <laughs> okay. And, um, yeah, so, but um, it's actually turned out to be the best thing I ever did. I'd originally intended to do it for about 10 years, but I'm still going at it, and I'll be doing it until I retire, which is going to be a few years off. Can you, can you repeat that again? Did I hear you correctly? You said that teaching is the best job you've ever had. 
Yeah, the best the best thing I've ever done. It's a absolutely fantastic thing, and it's. Um, but the 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 money just um, is, and I said that in the text. If you read it earlier, earlier, is that's the worst. That's the worst thing. I think after twenty years, I'm sort of coming up to the sort of money I was on <laughs> twenty years ago. My gosh! And uh, and I I just really I'm really pleased to be um, mm. with you, so I can shout out to all of the. Uh, young teachers and the young um, people thinking about being uh, going into the profession is to give it a go. It's getting it's going to get better. We hope, but Beautiful. they do need that. They they do need the support. I I mean I as an older teacher and uh, all of my colleagues, you know, on the same sort of level. It's not about the money for us, but it mm. definitely is for getting the best talent through the door and keeping them there. Well, you Phil. Think about, Phil, this is the sort of teacher, Paul, here, uh, who is the type of teacher that us, when we were young, we remember, huh? A, a sort of teacher that has passion, has drive. It's, 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 it's quite something to, sit, to, to, to hear, Phil. I, I love I love to hear that, and, and I, you know, I, I, I still think you should be paid fairly and we should be paying enough to uh, encourage people in, but people shouldn't be there for the money, and, and it's the most important job. You know, I, had, I had an uncle who became a teacher in his late 60s. He, he had been a scientist, physicist. He went and taught physics at Waiheke Island. What a brilliant thing to do. Yeah. So finally, Paul, so here you are. We're talking about uh, switching careers. Do you see, how do you view our young people this afternoon? Give us, give us a message from across the country on behalf of our young. What, what are you seeing? Do we have... The young young people in the classrooms. Yeah, do we have a f- yeah. bright future ahead of us for New Zealand society? Oh, uh, young people are absolutely fantastic, and it's one of my great annoyances is how old people say, "Oh, young people have got no respect. Young people don't do this. Young people are lazy," and they're not. They are just absolutely fantastic, but they they do need to be taught resilience. And after COVID, they're not getting the right support from so many areas. To say, look, you can do this. You can work through yeah. this. There is a great future out there. I've got a quick question, uh, personal question for you, Paul. I yep. have a 15-year-old going to the first party. Should I put an ear tag and follow him, geo- geotag him? <laughs> no. <laughs> trust. <laughs> trust. If you've, brought, if you've brought your kid up well, trust. And also, they're going to fail. There is going to be a day when they come home absolutely ratty drunk, just like everybody else did. But, <laughs> All right. Yeah. Okay. I've been proven wrong. Trust. Uh, trust. Trust is the biggest thing. I mean, that's right. the worst thing that you can do with okay. a teenager. Enough. I've heard enough. <laughs> I've heard enough. Now, Paul. Thank you, yeah. Alexia well, Russell, Phil Taylor. You've been fantastic. I'm Wallace Chapman. See you tomorrow, three forty-five. Lisa Owen with Checkpoint next.